Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of John Cicada. No one needs to know that, but I'm telling you. Uh, to my virtual left, who's laughing at me, is Doug Ahmed. Odd thing to admit, but I, yeah, I like it. Hey, update everyone. My Xbox showed up on Friday. So I have the new Ooh. Xbox. I'm subscribing to the $15 per month uh, Microsoft Game Pass, which gives me access to hundreds of games for free. Almost none of which I'll ever be able to play because I have three kids and I'm in my 40s. So it's it's hard being an older gamer, but I'm going to give it my best. So thank you for sticking mm. with me. And it's uh, we can put an end to this saga. Thank you. How's the PlayStation well, coming along, dude? I don't want to talk about that, that right now. Should I? That's a, uh, okay. still a little, <laughs> it's mm, never, still a little tender. It's not happening. Yeah. Um, that third voice you're hearing to my virtual right is Paul the Duck Ducklin. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year and all that. Although we said that last week, didn't we? We did. Golly, how time but that's flies. Okay. Yeah, there's nothing Two wrong with extra already, happy. Eh? Wow. Yes. Oof. Yikes, so much has happened in oh, two God. weeks. What a long year uh, speaking- these two weeks have been. <laughs> right. Um, speaking of so much happening, Doug, what do we have uh, happening in the news? We're going to talk about some hacks and some breaches. We're going to talk about Google's Titan hardware security keys. Those have been hacked by French researchers. And there be breaches out there. We'll talk about one in particular affecting email security company Mimecast. But first, fun fact. Mario of Super Mario Brothers fame was originally, and perhaps fittingly, named Jumpman. He was eventually named Mario after the landlord of a warehouse that Nintendo was renting. The landlord, Mario Sigali, resembled the video game Mario. Aww. And the rest is history. That's really sweet. Yeah. I hope he. Uh, I hope the the owner also coined the phrase "It's me, Mario." It's a me, Mario. He probably said that when they were like, "Can you come and check on the the toilet's not working?" He'd knock on the door and say, "It's a me, Mario." <laughs> Another fun bonus question: Do you know what Mario's last name is? Oh, it's Mario. I don't. It's Mario, Mario. <laughs> so a lot of thought went into naming uh, Mario's first name, but it's Mario, Mario, and his brother Luigi Mario. Wow. Uh it's like uh, like major, 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 major. I'm Douglas Douglas reporting live for Naked <laughs> Security. Um, okay, before we get into that first news headline, I'm going to tease the Oh No of the Week, which happens towards the end of our episode, so stick around. And all I'm going to say is this is a time where the subject line may be vague, but it's technically not wrong. Stick around. Our first story today, Google Titan security keys hacked by French researchers. So uh, Victor Lomna and Thomas Roche from a company called Ninja Lab. That is a cool company name, name, is it not? It is a great name. Uh, (laughs) It sounds like a place that I want to work at. Uh, Sorry, Sophos. Um, Might need to brush up on your your, uh, pure mathematics. Oh, yeah. It's a very technical paper. Uh, Don't look at me. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the high-level stuff, but the paper is called A Side Journey to Titan, Side Channel Attack on the Google Titan Security Key. So again, very technical paper. As Doug said, it's strong mathematics 
technical skills required here. And uh, in the paper, they explained how they bypassed Titan's anti-clone protection and figured out a way to extract secret data from the device itself. If you're not familiar with Google Titan, it's essentially a 2FA device, which looks like a miniature key fob, and it contains specialized and supposedly tamper-proof hardware for performing secure cryptographic calculations. However, that's a big supposedly that we're going to put on top of their duck. Can you tell us more about this Google Titan story and what these researchers were uh, able to find? Yes, if you have a, a Google Titan key, you'll be familiar with what they look like. They are surprisingly similar to, because some of them share the same hardware with keys from Chinese company, uh, I, I presume you say Fitian, uh, which actually make the Google Titan, the hardware in the Google Titan key. Uh, so it's not just like a Fitian key, it is one. Uh, and uh, Scandinavian company Ubico, which are probably the, the perhaps the best known of these little key fob yeah, makers. Yeah, so I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm aware so, of that uh, one. You know how they work, right? They, they've, well, Google do something that Ubico decided not to do, um, and they support Bluetooth, NFC, which is you know the the the, the way that that PayWave credit card works work and USB. So you have this little key. You can either wave it near your phone if it does NFC, or wave it near a Bluetooth device, or just temporarily you plug it into a USB socket. They've got one that does the old flat USB-A and one for the new USB-C type sockets. And when it's in correspondence with your device, it does secure cryptography to help you with authentication. And the reason that these are popular is that the whole idea of these security keys, and the Google Titan is an example of this, is that you probably know that all cryptography, whether it's so-called secret key cryptography or public key cryptography, uh, relies on some key material, some encryption secret that really has to be kept secret. Uh, so, for example, with a password, it's something that you might keep in your head, but you might write it on a post-it note and stick it on your monitor where someone could steal it. If it's a, a cryptographic key in a file, like a private key for public-private key encryption, and it's just lying around on your computer and you get malware on your computer, the malware could find it, upload it, and then the crooks have got a copy. If it's lying around on your server and someone breaks in or finds a web vulnerability and they can get your private key, hey, they can pretend to be you. So the idea of these Titan keys is that the private key that's part of the proving your identity part of the cryptographic calculation is generated by the key for doing the calculations, but cannot be exported from it. So you can't accidentally save it to a file on your hard disk. And what that means is when you want to do a cryptographic calculation, you plug the key in, you send in the data you want to get encrypted or digitally signed, and the signed data comes back, but the key, the secret part, never leaves the device. You unplug the device and you're golden. And the theory is that even if you plug that key into a device or NFC it near a phone that already has malware on it. In other words, even if you connect it to a device that itself is already compromised by malware, the malware cannot send an instruction to the key, even if it's the most powerful sysadmin in the whole world, can't tell the key, tell me your secret. And that's the whole idea. Tamper-proof, so you can't open it up and, and kind of connect the chip to another, to another device. And uh, secret-resistant 
in that there's no way that you can trick it by giving it a fake command that lets it bleed out this cryptographic data. So if you can violate those assumptions, A, that it's tamper-proof, and B, that you can't extract the super-secret data from it, then it kind of doesn't fulfill its remit perfectly. And that, sadly, is what these chaps found. So if I may, on when I was in the tech media, we would breathlessly report Google... The sec- tech media. Yes. Google security key hacked <laughs> with little to no attention paid to how serious the hack was. But sometimes these are kind of proof of concept hacks, like the, the iPhone one for getting the photos from across the street we talked mm. about the other week. And sometimes mm-hmm. there's serious hacks. So on a scale of maybe like one to 10, how, how I, you, you, I'm assuming you're going to get into the how it works, but like how serious is this one? On a, is this more proof of concept or is this more like a serious hack out in the wild now? I, I guess it is a proof of concept. In other words, it just shows that the Titan keys, and there are some others that they found, including one, uh, uh, an older model of a Yubico key and a bunch of keys that come from Phytian as well that aren't the Titan keys, but are like them. They use the same chip. That's why they're vulnerable. Uh, so it shows that it shows what a determined attacker can do. And on the grounds, as you will often hear us say, uh, or hear cryptographers saying, attacks only get smarter, attacks only get faster, which is generally true. It is like a little bit of a warning bell, like how can we redesign the next generation of devices so they don't have this hole in? So on a scale of sort of naught to 10, you could say in terms of did they actually, in theory, hack the key? 10 out of 10, yes, they did. They showed that they can extract data from the key that is not supposed to be available. Nobody is supposed to be able to get it out. On the terms of practicability, like how easy would it be to use this attack in real life life against somebody who had targeted, you'd probably say it's about naught and three quarters out of ten, fortunately. And uh, there are two well there there are two reasons for that. One is that they actually require possession of your Titan key for at least six hours. And the reason for that is that to get enough data to work backwards to to to, to go backwards from what they've captured to kind of decode the private key, they need to do 6,000 strictly unnecessary cryptographic calculations. And the speed of these devices can do about a 1,000 um, of those an hour. Therefore, they need at least six hours just to get the device to kind of leak enough radio data for them to do their magic trick. And they need... Is ten thousand dollars of equipment? You know, you could argue when you look at how much when you look at that ransomware crooks are making what ten million dollars ago. In yeah, a way, there true. are people who would say, you know, as far as cryptographic attack goes these days, that's almost chump change. Which yeah. seems rather sad to say that. The problem is that if somebody's got access, if they already have your username and your password, and they can get hold of your Titan key for six hours, they can log in as you anyway. Because if you think of how the jargon normally talks about two-factor authentication, something you know, which is usually a password you type in, and something you have, which does the one-time code, which is either a special app on your phone or the magic cryptographic key that you plug in or wave near your phone. And so if they've got your password and they've got your Titan key, they're you anyway. So in terms of 
does this open people up to attack who could not have been attacked otherwise by somebody who stole the key? No, it doesn't. I guess what they're thinking about is a case where somebody wants to trick you into thinking that you haven't been breached because they don't break into your account and change your password, which you'd notice. And they don't steal your Titan key that when you go looking for it, you go, hang on, I've lost my key. That's very worrying. Somebody else could have it. Let me take action. The idea is this is the sort of attack where you might want to keep logging into somebody's account where they've got a false sense of security because they've got this key. They don't realize it's ever left their possession. And as far as they're concerned, anyone who doesn't have the key can never log in because the key can't be cloned. But if somebody already cloned it and then returned the key to your purse or your pocket or your desk drawer or your wallet or your key fob or wherever you keep it, then you might not notice. And the other part of this attack is they actually found uh, that the Titan keys and the others they tried were actually quite difficult to get into to get access to the chip inside because they need physical access, not just to the device. They have to cut it in half, open it up, use fuming nitric acid, which is a terribly dangerous and corrosive substance, used to be used for rocket fuel, and they basically dissolve or what's called uncap the chip inside. So they also have to be really careful, A, that they don't ruin their lungs, and B, that they don't actually ruin the chip by putting on too much nitric acid. And only then can they get out the electromagnetic data that they need. And what they found is that they were able to uncap the chip and the key would keep working, but it's easy to make a blunder, right? You know, so if you steal someone's key and then you accidentally ruin it, then you've given the game away. And the other thing they found is that in order to separate the key into two halves, one of which has got the circuitry essentially bonded to it and the other is just a cover to protect it, they had to use a heat gun. And if you look at the article that we wrote or their report, you'll see that it's kind of obvious. So if someone were to steal your Titan key, perform this trick on it, and then put it back in your bag, because they'd have to want to do that. Otherwise, they'd just take the key and they've got it and they're in anyway. So assuming they want to return it, when they returned it, it would look as though it had been in the tumble dryer for seven hours <laughs> or as though, you know, you'd left it on the dashboard of your car in bright right. L.A. sunlight. Uh, uh, you know how, you know, you've, you've probably me- melted ID cards and credit cards in your car on the dash on a summer's day. It looks like that. Now, someone might yeah. figure out how to how to separate this thing so that it doesn't look like it's... I'm looking at the photo right now in the article. You guys, listeners, should check it out. It looks pretty charred. Um... <laughs> looks pretty melted down. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just fu- someone said, well, "Why don't you just you just buy here. lots of keys and then you and then you, you'd get a fake shell." The problem is that my understanding is that when judging from their photo, when you split the thing in half, you don't. It's not like you're opening a protective case and inside is a chip. Like if you've ever used, say, a Raspberry Pi, you know you can get those little cases and they're really tiny. And when you prize them open inside is the raspberry pi board and you can take the pi board out uh Mm. it doesn't seem to work like that once they've separated it you've got one half of the key has got all the electronics on and the other half is just there as a shield and so if you so you you can only replace 
one of the halves with a brand new, beautiful, clean, 3D printed look of bit of plastic. And I imagine when you tried to put, if you tried to put a brand new one on the other half of the melted key, it would actually be even worse because it just, it would never line up. It'd be really difficult. To, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you are worried about this attack, A, keep your Titan key on your, on your person whenever you can. That's why it's designed to go on a key fob. And, you know, before you use it every time, have a look at it and see if it shows signs of someone having dipped it in nitric acid for a while, basically. <laughs> so that's the good news. It's, it's a difficult attack to pull off. They've got to have your key for six hours. And when they give it back to you, which they have to want to do so that they can keep an eye on you in the future and you don't realise that your key's been hacked, you've got a fighting chance of noticing. So they might be able to get into your account once, but if you keep your wits about, you should notice straight away. Yeah, and I think a friendly reminder to people who are listening to this, and you put this in the article, is don't stop using your Titan keys. Um, yes, that's the, that's why I said zero and three quarters out of ten for danger. And <laughs> yeah. that's not me saying that. I was actually quoting from the guys who did the research. They said at the end, look, we, you know, we, this is, we think this is quite an important result, but don't let it stop using a Titan key if you have one, you don't have right. to go and shred it and like wait for the new one to come out because you're much safer with a username, a password and the Titan key protecting you than get with just the username and the password and, oh, I'm going to stop using the mm -hmm. Titan key. Um, right. Particularly if you look at not just the equipment you'd need, like you said, $10,000, but also the, the expertise that you would need to be able to get this attack just right. It's quite it, it can't be automated at the moment. You know, you have to separate the key with a heat gun without ruining it. You have to use the nitric acid to uncap the, the, the chip. You have to right. put it in exactly... They were using a, a, a Thor Labs manual positioner. You can see a photograph of it in their paper. It's like a sort of precision <laughs> wild. piece of equipment. And that is... It's positioning. There are little, there are little like, sort of uh, vernier screws that you can turn that adjust it in three axes, X, Y, and Z. And it's accurate to uh, 10 micrometers, which is, uh, for those of you in the United States of America, four ten-thousandths of an inch. And they have a little ra a radio probe device, which is basically like a little sort of a little metal spike that you need to point at exactly the right part of the chip. And this <laughs> yes. spike, it's, it's like the coil that does the radio detection. It's looking for like radio waves that are caused by ele the electrical currents that happen while the calculations are going on, which tiny little stray signals that just leak out from the chip. And this has a half millimeter wide coil. And you need to record all this data, and then you need to do a whole load of special calculations that give you some insights into some of the data inside the the the, the calculations that involve the private key. And then you have to go and do a whole load of post-processing. So it's not something that you could just say to someone, hey, while you're cleaning this guy's hotel room, take the key yeah. out, stick it in this machine for five minutes, and then put it back in the bag. You'd have to go well equipped and they might smell the nitric acid when they got back and you'd probably <laughs> leave some burns in the carpet, I reckon, and maybe you'd melt the hole through the tabletop too. Well, okay, but- If you're lucky. Corner case, what, uh, a foreign spy is using one of those and he is murdered <laughs> and the key is taken off his person. Well, then you don't really, that's a 
Can we get his data? I, I, I'm just, I'm kind of, my mind's boggling a little bit because when it, I, I was thinking, oh, spy, spy, you know, great. It's, uh, it's like, could be a happy ending. And then when the murder came along, Doug, I sort of, I okay. lost my concentration <laughs> let, for a let moment. Me, let me start over. I, if I died right now, my wife would be in a real world of hurt because she doesn't have the passwords to get into all our bank accounts and stuff like that. I use a password manager. She doesn't have the master password. If I'm using one of these keys and I keel over at my desk in the middle of a two-hour-long conference call, which is bound to happen one of these days, <laughs> can she use this technique, maybe hire someone to do it, to get my uh, the info she needs to get into our accounts? She doesn't need it because presumably she would have your Titan key. So she doesn't need to clone it. I see. Okay. <laughs> Good point. Uh, Good point. You, so, Ubico, so that works with the spy, Google's too. Google's competitor. Have yeah. a, gotcha. Okay. Yep. Ubico, who's Google's competitor. In fact, they were sort of partners for a while, and then Google decided, hey, we're going to do our own. Ubico, are, either they have or they're working on a version that has a fingerprint sensor on it mm, so that when yeah. you plug the key in, it won't actually allow itself to be used unless you touch it. So that way, it's good, Doug, because you're when you're dead, your wife can just put your dead finger on. I'm going to will my thumb to her. No, that, 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 that doesn't work, by the way, <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> which is just as well, right? If, if you kill somebody, their, their fingerprint isn't going to work. So, no, <laughs> girl can dream. The the, I guess if you call is a use case the right term here. The idea of cloning somebody's key where it needs this amount of work is you would either you would think I really want to target that person, but I haven't mm. been able to fish their username and password yet. And when I do, I'm going to need to go and grab their Titan key, by which time they might have gone back to their own country or they might have gone home or they might have, you know, they might have put on a different fob. But I've got their key now. The idea is... So you might want to clone the key part of it so you can bypass their second factor of authentication later and you'll need to return the key to them so they don't notice you've messed with it. Otherwise, they know that the game's up, right? We kidnap the spy. We knock him out with formaldehyde. He's out for six hours. We put him in a train station. He wakes up. He's got his key that we've repaired. It doesn't look burned, no, but now we cloned it. So he realized he wakes up to the smell, the lingering smell of fuming nitric acid in his pocket and chloroform all in his head and realizes that as a secret agent, he's obviously been kidnapped and mentally manipulated for an amount of time that he can't determine. But according to the station clock is at least six hours. And then he gets his special super secret key out and it's melted he might he might call his handler and say i think something bad happened oh, just the feeling doug okay well <laughs> you heard it here first don't stop using those keys i guess the interesting thing here if you if you know how most digital signature algorithms work and some of the complexities of programming cryptographic functionality securely because here we're actually assuming that even if you have possession of the hardware. Remember in the old days, people say, oh, if I've got the hardware, like all bets are off. These days, the idea is there is a class of devices and your mobile phone is supposed to be one of them, that even if the person has the device, they can't necessarily, there is some data, cryptographic data that they cannot extract from there. And that's the whole idea of these keys, that it has, it's as hard to hack into this cryptographic key 
as say your iPhone, but at a fraction of the cost and very easy to use. So it's quite spectacular that it was this resistant, you could say. Yeah, so don't stop using these because they do provide that functionality. But the problem is that what these guys were able to do once they'd once they'd dissolved that once they'd uncapped the chip and they could actually measure the electromagnetic emissions, the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm that's used by these by this particular chip, it involves uh, a stage which involves multiplying numbers together. And it turns out you think that writing an algorithm to do multiplication in a computer is it's it's moderately complicated, but it's not that hard. If you're stuck, you could just use the long multiplication algorithm that at least used to be taught at school that lets you multiply long numbers together. But the problem is what you need to do, assuming that someone actually has the chip and they're listening in with this 10 micrometer precision radio probe for how long, for example, it takes to go around every loop and how long each little bit of the multiplication algorithm takes. You can imagine, if you think about doing multiplication in your head, that some sums, actually they're not sums, they're products, but some products are easier to calculate than others, right? If I ask you to multiply 321 times 100 in your head, it'll take you basically zero time to do it. You know you just stick two zeros on the end. If I ask you to multiply 321 by 101, then you could probably do it in your head because you multiply by 100 and then you add the number you first thought of and it's easy to do in your head. But if I said to you multiply 321 by 745, you're either going to reach for a calculator or you're going to get pen and paper, aren't you? And so... I could tell the type of numbers involved in the calculation by how long it took you to do it. Like if I told you the, the sum and you came back really quickly with the answer, I'd probably, or I, or I told you the, 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 I said, calculate this thing. I only know one of the numbers. I want to figure out the other. And you came back with the answer in a fraction of a second. I figure, I bet he was multiplying by 100 or 200, something really easy. He probably wasn't multiplying by a complicated number. And that very, very, loosely speaking, is the sort of trick that's used here. Because when you do programming of algorithms like multiplication in particular uh, for computer purposes, you need to make sure that your algorithm doesn't actually work too well. In other words, if you give it an easy calculation to do, you must make sure that it takes exactly the same length of time as if I give a hard one. And you must make sure, essentially, that it takes the same path through the code. So the sort of radio noise that comes out as the loops are going on doesn't vary at any point. And that is the kind of subtlety that these guys were looking for, and they found it. So that's what makes it quite a majestic read and why I enjoyed it. And, you know, if you like your spy stories, this is, if you like, one with a happy ending. Yep. Check out this story. It is Google Titan Security Keys Hacked by French Researchers. You can check that out on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Thank you, Duck. Uh, Doug, what do we have for technology etymology this week? Bluetooth. Most of us use it every day, but... Do you know the origins of the name? According to Bluetooth.com, quote, the name dates back more than a millennium to King Harold Bluetooth Gormson, who was well known for two things, uniting Denmark and Norway in the year 958, and his dead tooth, which was a dark blue-gray <laughs> color, earning him the nickname Bluetooth. 
So during the early days of Bluetooth standardization talks, an executive from Intel suggested the technology be codenamed Bluetooth, saying King Harold Bluetooth was famous for uniting Scandinavia, just as we intend to unite the PC and cellular industries with a short-range wireless link. Wow. So finalists for the actual name of the technology were RadioWire, or PAN, personal area networking, as it's sometimes referred to now. But Bluetooth stuck after PAN turned up too many existing searches online and RadioWire trademark research couldn't be completed in time for launch. I think we can all agree that Bluetooth is the coolest name of those three anyway. Yeah, agreed. It is. And do you know that the Bluetooth logo is in fact basically in the runic alphabet, which was used at the time, English used it, uh, at that time as well, or maybe slightly before. It's basically uh, the combination of the letter Hagel, which is H, and Beork, uh, which is B. And so it stands Aww. for HB, Harald Bluetooth. I love it. And cool. uh, if you're wondering, Hagel is, it was the old Anglo-Saxon word for, it, it, we still use the old English word in modern English, but we pronounce it Hail you know, the, the frozen rain, mm-hmm. and Beorg uh, has become birch. It's a, a tree. And so actually the, lo- the, the logo is the Futhark, alpha, alpha, not alphabet, Futhark, the runes uh, for HB. I learn something new every week. So when you see that, it does not refer to the medium-grade hard black pencil. It refers to Harold. Oh, the other thing is, do you know that his son, he was ousted by his son who was uh, the majest- even more majestically named Swain Forkbeard, who was not only... <laughs> That's uh, a great name. Not, not only, yeah, he had a fork beard, I guess. Uh, he, who was actually uh, not only, I guess, King of Scandinavia, but King of England as well. Wow. Well, he had the last laugh because now he lives on in the technology that is Bluetooth. Yeah, yeah it didn't work out. Too well for the Danes in the end, though, because, of course, by 1066, along came the Normans. And my understanding is Normandy was originally settled by much the same people, uh, uh, but they'd sort of become, they were speaking Norman French by then, and they came in and, and of course, defeated the later Harold at the Battle of Hastings. Too soon, Paul. Those wounds have not healed yet. Too soon. <laughs> All right, email security company Mimecast released a blog post stating that a, quote, sophisticated threat actor, end quote, compromised a Mimecast-issued certificate used to connect a few of the company's products to Microsoft 365 Exchange web services. Mimecast goes on to say that around 10% of their customers use the connector, and of that, they believe a, quote, low single-digit number of those customers were targeted. Their advice? Delete the existing connection and reestablish it with a new certificate they've made publicly available. Paul, what is going on here? It's kind of hard to say, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think given the previous story, uh, we can probably have a good guess. But the thing that lost me in all of that is the idea that, like, what is a low single-digit number? I mean, couldn't they just say three? <laughs> I mean, or, or is seven low? <laughs> I mean, there aren't that many single-digit numbers, are there? I think it's got to be uh, four well, or fewer. That's, that's four. Four, four so, three, two, or one, right? Well, yeah. So basically, as far as because they, it it's perhaps annoyingly brief because that really is that's all they're saying. But in a way, this is 
very a very useful story to follow the previous one because as you can imagine the idea is, is when you think about oh the the certificate was compromised it wasn't that the digital certificate was stolen mimecast certificates you can go to their website they've got a, a actually it's a salesforce webpage where you can download they've got seven different cryptographic certificates essentially signed public keys that you can download depending on which uh, country the server that you want to use i think they've got australia germany us uk canada the the jersey as in the the, the island of jersey and south africa so there's seven different certificates that you can download and essentially you can think of the certificate as a signed public key that anyone who wants to either accept a connection from Mimecast or make a connection to, in this case, your Microsoft cloud-based email service, that that service, that the application that you're using there, can use the public key to connect to Mimecast or be connected to from Mimecast and then basically challenge Mimecast, whoever's at the other end, hey, I've got this public key in this certificate that you provided me. Here's some data. Prove that you've got the private key that matches this public key in the certificate. Sign it and send it back. And I'll use the public key to verify that I'm talking to the right person. That's basically what a digital certificate is all about. It's exactly the same thing that happens. Well, it is TLS. The same thing that happens when you browse to a website and it comes back to you and says, I am nakedsecurity.sophos.com. What will be provided is something that said, and to prove it, you've got our public key. Here's something that's signed with our private key. So it's kind of like the the Google Titan key story all over again, isn't it? It sounds as though somebody somehow has extracted the private key for these certificates from one or more of Mimecast servers. So in the case of the Google Titan key, which is like a personal certificate store, the attackers had to cut the key in half, use the nitric acid, use radio waves to read some cryptographic calculation, extract the data, But of course, that's not the only way you get out private keys. Sometimes, for example, when they're on your server, you need them readily available. So they might be sitting around as a file in a secure part of your operating system where somebody who hacks into your server might be able to recover them. So it sounds as though that's what happened. And it means that it that basically it breaks, if you like, that cryptographic sanctity that says the public key in the certificate, anybody can access that. The private key is meant to be perfectly private, and that's how the other end proves that it really is them at the other end. So if somebody clones or copies your private key, then that cryptographic sanctity, if you like, is broken, and it means you can no longer be sure that you're talking to the right person because you could be talking to an imposter. And I don't know about anyone else, but it seems that any breach or any attack that's happened since you know, the past, over the past month or so, immediately the question has to be asked, is this part of the SolarWinds thing or is this not part of the SolarWinds thing? Yes, I've seen a lot of speculation about that. And of course, well, if it does turn, you have to ask yourself, if if somebody managed to liberate, steal the private key for one or more certificates from Mimecast, how did they get it? Yeah, like, like you, I've read a lot of speculation. Oh, well, it must be to do with SolarWinds. The good news is, if you like, is that it kind of doesn't matter 
And that's, in a way, almost a little bit of a red herring. It would be more embarrassing, perhaps, for solar winds if this were yet another problem that occurred had occurred because of that of the the solar winds issue. But it's important to remember that something like solar winds, where someone sneaks malware into your system and you pass on to the next guy, and then the crooks use it to break into that guy's system, that is far from the only way that crooks can get at your private key. And the reason we know that is that not often, but surprisingly frequently, we see malware where the file, rather than the connection here, you're digitally signing a file, where malware executable files are digitally signed with somebody else's private key. In other words, the crooks must have got into that company or bribed someone at that company or got malware into that. Well, somehow they've got the private key out of that company that they use for code signing and they've signed their malware. And, you know, the fact that this is way more common than it really should be uh, suggests that there are many different ways in which this could happen. So what worries me about the connection between this and solar winds, whether it's true or not, what worries me is that people go, oh, well, it's rated to SolarWinds. I don't use SolarWinds product, so my private keys need no extra special attention from me. I can just carry on sailing exactly as I have been so far. And that's what worries me when you get these kind of assumptions, is that it could give people who, instead of saying, hey, this story means maybe I should go and review how I keep my own private keys secure on my servers, that instead of going, hey, did we use the SolarWinds product? No, then we are fine. Mm-hmm. And you know that would, be a, that would be a risky conclusion to make. So if you're looking for a moral in this story, or, or if you're looking for it to provoke you to do something, if you, you, if you, if you use neither SolarWinds nor Mimecast products, go, you know what? If it could happen to someone like Mimecast, well, to be fair, it could probably happen to me Maybe I'm going to review how I do security, in particular, how I do server authentication security, how I store my private keys, how I do my code signing, how I do my uh, website validation, how I do my connection validation and so forth. That's what I do from this story. Make it a pizza party. Order a pizza for everyone. Uh, (laughs) If you've ever been if you've ever been to, you know, uh, cybersecurity expert groups in your area. Um, or if you've ever been involved in like a you know sort of code hackathon, uh, you'll know that providing pizza is an important part of all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, if you want to get your techies <laughs> together and say, look, it happened to them, let's not be so brash and bold as to say, well, we're smarter than that; it could never happen to us. Let's use this as a good reason to invest a little bit of time now and going and making sure that we are doing our private key security correctly. By the way, another way that we often see private keys getting stolen or used to, there are some precautions around this now, it was a particular problem with people who are working on open source projects, is that a lot of open source, a lot of uh, source code control systems uh, use SSH, and that generally relies on exactly this sort of Uh, connection security. There's a private key that you keep and there's a public key you put on the server and the server won't let you in to upgrade your source code on the server unless you can prove you've got the private key. And it's kept in a secret subdirectory somewhere on your hard disk. And what we've seen people do is they go, hey, I've done a huge update to my fantastic open source product. I'm going to update my 
upload my whole new source tree, commit all the changes to the public server where everybody can get it, and while they're doing this huge directory tree upload, they accidentally upload the hidden directory with the private key in it. Very bad idea. Oopsies. So it can... It, <laughs> there are plenty of people who've made exactly this sort of blunder in the past. Uh, fortunately, many of them got away with it because, like, when it comes to uploading keys to things like GitHub, for example... Services like GitHub now aggressively go looking through people's public data. And if they find something that smells like a private key, they go, no, 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 you made a blunder. And they tell you and they kind of prevent people downloading it. Um, of course, when it's crooks going after stealing a key from you, they try and avoid leading the leaving the telltale signs behind. And, you know, if they're careful, it's quite difficult to spot that one file out of zillions is the one that's been stolen and how critical it might be. Yeah, if it was stolen, you'd say, oh, no, right, Kim? Doug, it's it's interesting to hear you use the word stolen, and I've used it quite glibly throughout this podcast. Oh, someone stole a private key. And we often get taken to task by naked security readers who say, oh, the thing in data breaches is nothing was stolen. The problem is it was copied. Because, you know, when you come home and you're widescreen TV is missing from the wall in your living room, you know it's gone. But the problem here is if somebody copies one file and then manages to erase from the logs that they were in your system at all and that the file was taken, they have stolen it because they've got a copy, but you don't realise because they haven't left behind the telltale signs. Good point. GP, oh no. Oh no. Now can I say oh no? <laughs> Um, hey, listen, it is that time of the episode. We are going to read the Ono oh of the week. The Ono oh of the week comes from CryptoAnarchist86, who writes, I'm a computer tech for a public school system. It's a brand new campus with mostly new staff. So getting everyone to use our ticketing system was a chore in and of itself and is still an ongoing effort. A short while ago, I got a ticket from a teacher, and I honestly don't even remember the issue. This particular teacher gets on my nerves because he rarely submits a ticket versus texting or reaching out on Teams, but when he does submit a ticket, the description is always super vague. Computer don't work kind of vague. Then, when I respond asking for more details about the issue, the guy ghosts me for weeks until I close his ticket. Anyway, I get one such vague ticket from this guy, and the subject says, Reading. Then the description says something like, computer don't work. <laughs> I pause and try to make a connection between the issue and the description and the subject, but I can't figure out what he means. I let it go and just show up to the guy's classroom and deal with whatever the issue was and don't give it another thought. Then a week or so later, I get another reading ticket from the same guy. <laughs> this time, it's a Wi-Fi issue or something. Again, I'm confused about the subject line. Is the Wi-Fi affecting his ability to read something? I don't know. Again, I let it go. Then a few days later, I get a ticket from a different teacher with the subject of math. <laughs> right, th <laughs> right then, it hit me like a ton of bricks. These teachers think I care what subject they teach when they submit a help desk ticket. Like somehow the subject they teach has an impact on their IT issue. Laugh, cry emoji, laugh, cry emoji, laugh, cry emoji. I busted out laughing right then because it was so obvious now what they meant. 
I couldn't believe I didn't catch on sooner. And the fact that this seems logical to the teachers is all too much. I can't get a clear description about their IT issue, but I'm damn sure going to know what subject they teach. Oh, boy. The end. Mm. Look, I'm not mad at the teachers. I'm not mad at the teachers here because... (laughs) I agree with you. I have to say... It's a subject line. What gets... (laughs) On my nerves about this story is that I'm going to go out on a limb here. <laughs> Crypto anarchist. I think we're all out on the limb with you. Is <laughs> I think the person who isn't really thinking about this properly is the support guy. I mean, yeah. that to me, that is IT support 1993 style, right? You're an idiot. <laughs> Gosh, you think I care what subject you teach? Seriously? You don't care? The person saying, I work in this department, that department, the other department. Oh, and you reached out to me on Teams, but you should use our ticketing system. How many different ticketing systems have you used in your life? And how many of them do you actually like? How many of them actually make it feel like you, a human being, are actually getting help by somebody else, a human being? Well, to me, that number is well, let's call it a low single-digit number, zero. Mm. And so, no, I'm absolutely with the teachers here. And my experience, okay, admittedly, you know, supporting customers of ours who work in schools has predominantly been at secondary schools. I've found it's actually very, very useful to know what subject the person teaches because, A, it tells you something about the person, helps you to get to know Mm. them, gives you some common ground to talk with them, and it's interesting anyway. Secondly, it does give you some insight into how urgent or important the problem is likely to be when it's explained. You know, in the same way that people, when they, they, they like to tell you what country they're from, or they like to tell you where they live, or they like to tell you something about yourself because it helps you understand the problem better here. So I think the support guy is being a right meanie here. I'm assuming it's a guy. <laughs> and to be honest, all ticketing systems should just pre-fill the um, what's wrong field with computer don't work. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if I knew the answer. It covers 90%. So, you know, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hello, what's wrong with you? And you go, body don't work. Body don't work. <laughs> if I knew, I probably <laughs> yeah, wouldn't be exactly. here. And the other thing I don't get about this, this guy <laughs> is complaining that somebody reached out to him using a corporate messaging product called Teams. What is it about the word Teams that he doesn't get? Like well, I find that annoying. You know, you, when you, you, you contact someone, you say, can you do this? You need to put in a ticket. So if it's that important, you put the ticket in. You know how the ticketing system works. Mm-hmm. You know what? I've spoken to you for 30 seconds. You can write the description far better than I can. So I'm with the teachers here. I'd be glad to know what they teach. Mm. It's interesting, right? Yeah. Teachers have it so hard. Let's let's go easy on teachers. You know what I mean? Especially now. <laughs> like let's let's uh, pump the brakes on uh, how judgy we are with teachers because uh, if they're even using the ticketing system and they're telling you, "Hey, my computer don't work." Hey, that's good enough. That's good enough. They're trying to wrangle kids and unruly teenagers. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. Leave them alone. I think this guy's got a chip on his shoulder about teachers. You know what I mean? I'm oh, thinking. I'm, yeah, I'm maybe. Thinking, doesn't, it, I'm thinking. As someone that's done tech support, it doesn't matter who it is. You just get a chip on your shoulder about your users in general. <laughs> Period. <laughs> I actually have uh, I have a bonus mini oh no, if I may, that I saw on Twitter. <laughs> that I, that is that a no? Yes. 
Doug? It hugely uh, tickled me. Matt Lanza, right? That's at Matt Lanza. I have a bad habit of never closing Safari tabs on my iPhone. This week, I learned that once you have 500 tabs open, you can open no more. He hit the tab limit. <laughs> 500. Can you imagine having 500 tabs open? Look, on I'm not going to lie. Yeah, the closing phone. A, a t- yeah, closing a tab on Safari is confusing. That's why I don't use Safari on my phone well, anymore. Well, there's the whole thing people went through about how you can close them and set them to close after a certain period of time and stuff like that. You can oh, hold down the tab and it'll close. I gave the, up. But uh, 500 tabs open. Yeah, I mean, oh, I get it. Amazing. Because it automatically, yeah. it automatically opens if you're on iPhone. It automatically mm-hmm. opens links in Safari and to a point where I just turned it off. I was like, no, stop it. I don't know how to close tabs on Safari. Well, with Safari on an iPhone, what I suggest that everybody learns is that settings Safari clear browsing data. There you because go. You for, you Easy f- button. Because I use a- Edge on my iPhone, right? But... You can't force, at least the version of iOS I have, you can't force it to use Edge for all your browsing. So there are yeah. some times that when you click a link, it opens Safari anyway. And I keep forgetting, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm connected to this site or I go back to a site and it kind of somehow magically knows something about me from last time. And I think, but I cleared my cookies. I, I clear my cookies in Edge like every every couple of days at the most and you remember oh golly i'm using a different browser and you wonder if you only use it very occasionally you know how much does it know about me and imagine if you've got mm. had 500 tabs open you've probably got <laughs> no, it's too much a value. lot of cookies and web data in there so learn how to clear it folks <laughs> settings at safari hot tip hot tip iphone don't work <laughs> iPhone don't work Safari don't work Um, if you enjoyed any of these oh no's you can submit them to us tips at sophos.com via email or you can DM us on Facebook Instagram and Twitter it's at naked security or on nakedsecurity.sophos.com you can leave an anonymous comment on any of our articles and Duck is always responsive to the comments so don't be afraid to leave us a comment on Naked Security and of course if you enjoyed anything that you've heard in this episode why not take 30 seconds and leave us a 5 star review on Apple Podcast until next time stay Stay secure Computer don't work.